0: We are Encountering Silence.
1: Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you.
2: Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world.
0: This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released in our previous episode of Encountering Silence.
2: I'm kind of curious, pushing a little bit about this as I'm thinking about the interaction of contemplative and activists. Do you find, do you get any pushback? Do you find that there are people who come and say, "Well, I'm, you know, if I'm not an activist, if I don't do something, you know, the world goes in this wrong direction. I need to be active." Or do you do you find, that, or do you find that people say, "Well, if I don't spend some time in this contemplative space, uh, I need to do that." There are some people who are activists, but I'm I'm a quiet person who needs to sit here in prayer. Do you find any kind of pushback against any of these movements and contemplative action? That you're describing here.
3: I think there's um, there is a realism, but a, the, we we tend to like things that we're familiar with, mm. so there needs to be a, there is a stretching necessary and a, a real honouring of the other. Right. And I think I, I, I believe that there's a there is a continuum uh, in all of us. Well, I, I feel it in in my own being between the the hermit and the engaged one. Uh, but it will be uncomfortable sometimes, and and but I think that's where community happens and dialogue happens, where the the perceived reality or the insights given to somebody who is more usually withdrawn or hidden by the active one, that that vocabulary needs to be checked out and explored so that both sides can be refreshed. And the continuum then, in any community, I think, can be explicit, more explicit than it has been, I think, in the past. As you say, well, if you look at monastic orders, traditionally there have been the active orders, in the Western Church anyway, mm. the active orders and the contemplative orders. I think that that is breaking down a bit now and people are realizing that there is a holistic perspective which allows you to be both active and passive and the hermit heart i believe that deep down even in many activists or hyper activists um I, I sometimes say to my wife um i'm a recovering hyper activist mm-hmm. she'll say mm, recovering so i too wrestle with the um with the dynamic between how much of my time is to be hidden and contemplative and how much of my time is to be engaged. And the community is the context within which that dialogue can happen. And the continuum needs to be embodied and taken seriously by the community so that we will be able to help each other on the way. And so contemplative intercession, for instance, Mm. people know about the the intercessory move i think contemplative intercession can be profoundly engaged spirituality because it is holding the wounds of the world right it is
2: it's doing Mm. deep
3: work it's doing deep work on behalf of the universe Mm -hmm. and there's something we need to explore something of that more profoundly and similarly the The person who is drawn to contemplative intercession, holding the wounds of the world, needs to be open to this, what I call, deep hearing and deep seeing and deep connecting, Mm -hmm. and then that becomes the teacher. The the Holy Spirit then works with the energy that's formed by insight, if those insights can be valued by the community. So we have to be valuing right across the continuum, from hermit to hyperactivist. That's the challenge. That's the joy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I found w- when I've been on either side of that, the con- you know, the con- more heavy on the contemplative side or more heavy on the activist side, I found for me that there are places where I can so easily be debilitated. And on the contemplative side, I can be debilitated by urgency. And on the contemplative side, I can be debilitated by agony. And finding that sacred center is just it's um it's important and it's it's hard and i wonder what you would say to that to those those extremes and you know how we can keep finding healing in one another to find that balance
3: it is healing finding healing in one another or through one another it's it is finding if if the bridging between the eremitic and the hyperactive or the, the, the solitary one and the engaged one, or the, the solitary part of one's being, or the hermit heart and the engaged heart. It's allowing space in Christian community to for those voices to be heard and for, for the trawling in the ocean to find the fish from each tradition. I'm change, breaking metaphors here. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's finding the resource and honouring the resources of from a tradition which is not your own. That's where some learning really happens, because we so easily judge what is not our own path um, and dismiss. So there's there's always a real danger of paying lip service to something, and I'm. It's it's really really important that integrity and depth are the key parts of the conversation, which then allows for trust to build gradually. Because I think people are, if they're not not an engaged activist, then people will be worried or suspicious of activism, so they need to be, those people need to be nurtured in the path of awareness and, and and likewise vice versa. The people who are activists, are often have not much time for the hidden and the reflective. But if we can learn to hear the stories of the other tra- of the other tradition, then the the richness is profound.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: but
3: it's a, it's a slow, it's a slow path
0: I'm reminded of a, a poem or prayer. It's kind of crosses the lines between the two by Teilhard de Chardin. I don't remember the entire thing, but the first line is something like, above all, trust in the slow work of God. And when I think about a garden, I think that gardening by its nature, you know, there's no such thing as a fast garden. You know, it takes time, it takes times for plants to grow, it takes time to cultivate, it takes time to weed, it takes time to, to landscape. So uh, the, you know, the there seems to be a relationship between silence and patience and perseverance yeah. and waiting especially waiting i'm trying to think was it here uh, on the podcast when we were talking about uh, the the simone veya and waiting for god yes i think yeah yeah we just recently had an interview we we've, we've done enough of these interviews now that they begin to blur together but yeah. um, <laughs> you know that, that and in i think French.
3: it's it's the, it's the smallness and it's the it's the smallness and the slowness. Sometimes things are very, very small, and I'm fascinated by the link between the small and the all, capital A all. The big, the cosmic, and the transcendent and the majestic, is needs the tiny and the and the slow and the and the small for its reality. And and our learning. I, I remember being once in a peace centre in Ireland called Glen Cree uh, and i was there for a conference and went out in the early morning and somebody else was out there and they they gesticulated across the mountain ranges that we could see and said look at this isn't this wonderful and i said yes it is wonderful but my heart wasn't quite wasn't quite there i couldn't see i couldn't really engage with the beauty so i went on for a little walk uh and the sun had risen and I found this little hollow and cooped be down, bent down in the hollow, and there was a glistening spider's web, glistening with dew. And it was just profoundly beautiful. So I rested there for a few moments, then stood up, and then saw the mountains and mm. could go, wow, yes. But I needed the smallness of the spider's web to be able to perceive the grandeur of the big. And it's that from the small to the all, is the way I would put it. And it's, it's, it's where the, the cos, cosmology, of the cosmos, the cosmic dimensions of all of this, needs the tiny and the, all, the overlooked often. And the slow needs the fast, and the fast needs the slow, and the growth needs and all of this. But it's something about smallness and slowness and doing small things well is really,
0: really important. I'm reminded of the passage in, in Paul's letter to the Romans where he talks about the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts through the love of God. And I think this is this beautiful idea that God is more vast than the entire universe, and yet God is nestled in each of our hearts. And so yeah. there's, there's another kind of entry point into that, the all and the small. So thank you,
3: right. and that's why, and that's why the quiet garden is the quiet garden because it just takes the ordinary person's garden and says this, this is also the mountainside that Jesus walked in. If Jesus walked on the mountainside mm. and across the lake, this is pivotal. And and I, in in our little house in High Wycombe in 1992, realizing aha. We want a microcosm of the macrocosm, where Jesus walked in big landscapes, very close from the city of Jerusalem out into the desert. We too, who are in urban environments, need that miniaturization of the cosmos. So a quiet garden is, for some, it could be a big quiet garden, or it could be a small garden, but it is essentially participating in the microcosm the grace of the microcosm, so that we can bridge with the macrocosm.
1: Mm. I I can't help but think of William Blake's um, To See a World in a yeah. Grain of Sand and Heaven and a Wildflower Hold yeah. Infinity in the Palm of Your Hand and Eternity in an Hour. Yeah, lovely. That's mm. what it's about.
2: I I hesitate to ask this question because I feel like it goes in a different direction that I want to go. But I'm very curious. I have to ask. One of the questions that we often ask our guests is if they have a, a silence hero. And what we mean by that is, is there somebody in your life, either a personal person that no one else knows except yourself... Or a famous person, or you know, uh, somebody from history, or a, a writer, or a poet, or or a saint, somebody that for you represents silence, embodies silence in a deep way, and and holds that space for you. Can I have three people? Absolutely.
3: <laughs> How so trinitarian? Mm. Oh, absolutely! I'm a professional trinitarian. <laughs> <laughs> The first the first person is Lillian Lloyd-Jones, which nobody will know, but she was mm. the dear lady who's, who lived in St. David's. St. David's is a very, very, very beautiful place on the Celtic edge uh, with a beautiful cathedral hidden from the Viking pirates. Mm. Um, and she had a little house on the way down the pebbles towards the cathedral, and I stayed with her for some months when I was studying theology many years ago. Uh, and she always had the key in the door, and people who knew her would knock on the door and shout "Kooi!" and she 'd shout "Cooey come in, oh come in and she would be uh, she was, she would network people so knocking on her door because she would meet them in the cathedral square in St David 's or in the cathedral itself would come Japanese brain surgeons, Russian orthodox archimandrites, hippies, waitresses. All sorts of people would end up in her house. She had a tiny, tiny, tiny garden. And she was a model for me of, before it it actually was named as such, years before the quiet garden movement, she was the place of stillness and prayer and welcome and hospitality. Then two others, Martin Israel was one of my, um, he was a pathologist and a very, he produced about 30 books. He died about 10 years ago. Wonderful deeply, deeply quiet and introvert man, but with a powerful, powerful perspective on life, So Martin Israel. And then Thomas Keating, who I had the privilege of interviewing and working with a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. Him in the context of his monastery, I was delightfully invited by one of the monks when I went to see Thomas Keating and stayed in the monastery. Uh, One of the monks said, if you would like to experience the vigil. Do get up at three o'clock in the morning and walk to the monastery for the in the dark. And so, having met with Father Thomas Keating, m- marching across about a quarter of a mile, I think, in the starlit sky again, which is where we began, to the monastery, and in, in almost complete darkness, the monastery gradually filled with the monks coming in for their night prayers. Whoa, that was amazing. So those three, Lillian, Lloyd-Jones, Martin Israel, and Thomas Keating, would be my silence heroes.
0: Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence.
1: You know, Philip, I do have a question. You know, we mentioned at the top of the hour that you were diagnosed with Parkinson's. In, was it 2016? Is that right? Yeah. And I wonder how that has just impacted your work and your life and um, if that's created kind of a deepening or how you've um, experienced that as perhaps a, a deeper encounter with humanity and this work, this this holy work, and how you found yeah. that to be.
3: It inevitably was a bit of a major shock, and I'm, I think I'm still mm. digesting it. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I, my my first day of retirement, uh, I was diagnosed, so that was a
1: wow, uh, a,
3: a hard pill to swallow. Because uh, mm. in, in, we were new to this area, we've only been living in this area for three years, and so that more or less coincided with the with my diagnosis. But in fact, I found some extraordinary comrades, uh, inevitably, if there is suffering, there is solidarity. And so I go to various Mm -hmm. groups, dance for Parkinson's and boxing for Parkinson's and running and Mm -hmm. neurophysiotherapy and all sorts of things. And there's a real sense of common honoring and mutual understanding with the people who belong to the Parkinson's network, I suppose. And of course, it slow it does slow you down. So there there has been learning through through what it means to to have this strange disease. Talk about unknowing. There's radical unknowing because they're still coming to terms with what what is this disease and what are its key cues as to help people to make the diagnosis and then. To know how best to deal with it. So it's been a challenge and continues to be. Uh, it's paradoxically a nurturing place and also a bit of a desert. So it's, it, there's, a, there's a greening needed in the desert and as with any sickness, it, there's a way of how to, how to hold that story without it becoming a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to hold the story so that the story st- puts down roots and allows shoots to happen of new life. So I mean, I'm,
2: mm.
3: as I say, still working through the implications of it all. There's, there's a. But some of us went to a, a show in Brighton two nights ago with a with an author and a comic writer who's got Parkinson's, doing a very funny um, hour-long. Solo monologue on Parkinson's and life. And it is, it's a matter of lifting it, lifting it and irrigating it somehow. But I have no, I haven't got words to describe quite what it is. But it it was both, it was a shock, a challenge, an invitation, and in a strange way, perhaps a resource.
1: I appreciate that you mentioned that unknowing. We had a guest on a few weeks ago that talked about this radical unknowing. It's amazing when that meets us in so many different aspects of our lives, and I can't imagine how you're meeting that now in different areas of your life, uh, yeah. al- alongside your work and your body and, and you know, with, with having Parkinson's. So thank you for sharing that I, with uh, us.
3: I think it's deepened my perceiving of things. In fact, um, a poem which sort of puts some of what we've been saying into focus. Can I can I read you this poem?
2: Oh, please,
1: please, sure. please.
3: So this is a poem by the by the Welsh priest R. S. Thomas, who is an extraordinary poet who who I met years ago in 1974. And this is um, I know where the little village he is writing about. It's on the Celtic Edge as well in North Wales on the Lean Peninsula, uh, in a little place called Aberdaran. It's called The Other. There are nights that are so still that I can hear the small owl calling far off and a fox barking miles away. It is then that I lie in the lean hours, awake, listening to the swell born somewhere in the Atlantic, rising and falling, rising and falling, Wave on wave on the long shore, by the village that is without light and companionless, and the thought comes of that other being, who is awake too, letting our prayers break on him, not like this for a few hours, but for days, years, for eternity. So that's that. Uh, he was a parish priest in Abadaran, which is at this little village, really, at the very end of the Sheen Peninsula. And just off the coast is Barsi Island, or Unessentially, where reputedly 20,000 saints are buried. So it's a very extraordinary mystical place. And uh, he was parish priest there for some years and wrote. uh, So that poem is about that little village on that promontory.
0: Well, I have one more question. I, I know we're almost out of time. But I'm just curious, if somebody wanted to start a quiet garden... Yeah. what would be the process for doing that? I know if you want to visit a quiet garden, you can go to the website, and we'll put the website in our show notes. You can yeah. you can go and 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 see where the nearest one... I, I looked it up, and I'm in Georgia, and the nearest one to me is in Florida, so I'm going to have to drive a little to get there.
3: I well, myself am not a gardener. Oh, I'm do sorry? You have to find someone locally to you who could open a quiet garden near you. Well, That's I, where I'm going. They're good, excellent. So mm-hmm. on the website, there is also a, a sort of section called what something like how do you set up a quiet garden? So there's, okay. there are criteria there or suggestions of what might constitute a quiet garden. And then you be in touch with us where we run a tiny shoestring budget or, um, organization, but there are two our part-time staff And if you emailed the email there, but also there are some quite helpful guidelines as to what makes a quiet garden. Basically, you decide as a householder whether to open. Uh, I I would often encourage people to work as a small team. It may be the, the host person whose house and garden we're talking about, but linked in with two or three people who you love, and you pray you know you can pray together and be still together um they become the, the welcoming group and then it's a matter of the host saying well i could we could do this quiet garden here once a month or once a week or once a fortnight or two or four times a year or only in the summer and spring and not in the winter there are many many models for quiet garden core to it is a desire to make available at low cost, local level, a provision for drawing aside for a while to be still in a place of beauty. Um, and, but the, the more formal way of becoming an affiliate or an associate is described on the website. If you're, and there are many of the quiet gardens are in family houses, I mean homes, but some quiet gardens are in retreat houses. Or churches. We have had one in a prison. Um, So the application of the vision to organizational settings such as schools, hospitals, that's just beginning to take shape. Because it's very exciting, and uh, because people know now increasingly that green nature is a gifting, a a blessing, a resourcing. And so whether you're an organisation or an individual then the off, the offering on an occasional basis this is not usually permanent although some quiet gardens in churches or in retreat centres will be a permanent permanently open as quiet garden most quiet gardens especially in people's houses are as i say they're open according to what the person discerns is there is the right place for them. I was visiting only this week a couple who are now in their mid-80s and they've been involved in the quiet garden movement for 25 years and they of course now are too old to um, open their quiet garden. They moved to a smaller property but there's a sense of continuing the storytelling and the tradition and that's, that's lovely when that can happen when somebody who's been involved in quiet garden for a number of years can hand the baton over to somebody else. That may sometimes happen, may not uh, happen at other times, but it's uh, the core call is, are you feeling called by God to do this? Are you feeling called by God to open your heart and to open your garden and um, to see what happens? Some lovely things happen.
0: Yeah, I wasn't thinking about myself personally, but I there are two retreat centers, well a retreat center and a monastery in Atlanta, both of which I'm going to bring this up with them because mm. I think they already have gardens. It's just a question of kind of plugging it into the to the quiet garden culture. So, so thank when you
3: when for I at, when I was on in Birch in, in Vancouver Island. I think there's a big, big garden there called Birchard Gardens, and six of us went around it when we were visiting quiet gardens in Canada. And we went around the whole of the, quiet, of the gardens and really enjoyed it, came back to the starting point, And one of the, the women in our group said, let's go around again in silence. We'll go around as a group, but we'll be in silence. And we did that. And it was a completely different experience. We were, again, attentive, but we were attentive at a far deeper level as we walked around feeding the community of intention walking around, and yet there was the stillness and the silence that was allowing us to perceive more deeply the beauty and the shape and the colour and the texture of the gardens. And that was a real teacher to me. So one can be profoundly in community and yet be silent, and the silence bequeaths a deeper sense of perceiving and deeper sense of praying and a deeper sense of attentiveness.
0: Well, once again, I find that, that this conversation has brought me to the threshold of silence. And, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, Philip, it's, it's obvious that you are a man who truly has befriended silence and has, has offered hospitality to silence in your life. And, and I so appreciate hearing a little bit of your story.
2: Mm. Yeah, and I, I want to affirm, I don't know if anyone's ever told you, but uh, you said you wanted to be a poet. And I feel like the the language you've used this entire interview has been so poetic and Mm
1: -hmm. and has moved
2: me in ways like I'm reading a poem. The language you use is so evocative, sensual, embodied. Uh, It it just uh, I want to thank you for your answers. They're beautiful, and so you truly are a poet.
3: Oh, thank you. It's it's been a real delight working with you three. Mm, Likewise. Um, and hopefully, the story, the story will um, shed its perfume on the air.
0: We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmcollman.com.
1: I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at CassidyHall.com.
2: I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is KevinMichaelJohnson.com.
0: Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.